when you hear about God's wonderful inheritance that he has for you, that it is immortal, it does not corrupt, it is eternal for you, what does that make you want to do? Well, Peter's going to answer that question in the second half of chapter 1. So take out your Bible and look with me to that section, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 13. Now, notice this first word is the word, therefore. It means in light of everything that he has said, our redemption, the work of sanctification in our life, bringing us into being obedient children of God, all of that should cause us to want to serve God. In other words, to get to work. If we could listen to the prophets today, what they're going to be saying more than any other message is, get to work. The time is short. We are seeing signs, evidence, that we are in a transition when we are leaving those things that were and we're moving forward rapidly to that which will, will be and that which will be forever. In light of that, he says, therefore, gird the loins of your mind. Now, think for a moment about Yeshua on the night that he was crucified or delivered over to be crucified. He washed the feet of his disciples. We see that he took the towel, the scripture says in John's gospel, and he girded himself. And he said to his disciples, I give you an example. That which I do unto you, you are called to do to others. I believe that Peter remembered that when he wrote, therefore, in light of all of these wonderful things that God has promised, he says, therefore, gird up the loins. Now, the loins is that middle section where really our foundation is. It determines so much of the direction that we go. And it says here, gird up the loins of your minds. How we think. And if we're not thinking according to the truth of God, we're not going to be ready to serve and we're not going to be heading in the kingdom direction. And when we look at where, for the most part, the majority of believers are moving, it's not in light of prophetic truth. So Peter says, therefore gird up. And literally, if we look at it, it's we've already wanted to do that. Having girded up the loins of your minds, be sound-minded, and you hope, and then the next word, it actually precedes the phrase for you hope. It's that same word which speaks of being brought to a proper conclusion and in the right objective. So he's telling us we need to think right and the hope that we are called to have is focus upon the end, a kingdom end. Not the end of the kingdom, but the end which brings about a kingdom eternity. And notice what's foundational to that. The message hasn't changed. He says, upon the grace that is being brought to you 
when? Now, we have been saved by grace, but grace is still very active in a believer's life. We don't receive grace, we're saved, and grace ceases to work. We don't see that in the scripture. Peter would never agree with that. Peter's telling us that grace perseveres with us. And the change that the grace of God begins, it's going to bring us into a godly conclusion, a kingdom conclusion. Where he says, it's all going to take place, and this is the second time he's mentioned, at the revelation, the revealing, the manifestation of Messiah Yeshua. So Peter is always thinking about what Tom prayed a few minutes ago, that glorious return for specifically believers, that we have ran the race, that we have finished the battle, and we've done so in a way, and we'll talk about this in a moment, in a way that testifies to our faith in Messiah's truth being manifested daily in our life. So the grace which has been brought to us at the revealing of Messiah Yeshua. Now, in light of that great promise, notice what that should bring about in our life. He says, look at verse 14, as obedient children. Over and over we see Peter, the disciple, being led by the Spirit, He's emphasizing us to be obedient children. Now, we know without faith, it's impossible to please God. But a true faith that pleases God manifests itself in the believer's life through obedience. So he says, verse 14, as obedient children, not being conformed to the former things, and notice what he speaks about these former things. Now, in verse 13, he says, gird yourselves, and he talks about our mind. We need to think differently. And he picks up on the same theme in this next verse, where he speaks about your desires, but there's a word I left out. Now, I don't know how it's translated in your Bible. It may be the word ignorant, but if you look at it, it's the word for knowing something, and it has a prefix, which means against. Those who are not walking in obedience, it's because they are against the knowledge of God. It's not that they're unknowing. They don't want to know. They are in bondage to their previous mindset. And let me tell you what the enemy is doing today. He is getting many people to believe that Messiah, that message of hope, is not a kingdom hope, but a hope whereby we receive what we want in this world. That is not a biblical faith. It is not what we're called to pursue. It is not the thought process that is honoring of God. What does Paul say? We're studying Peter, but Paul says something very similar. When he says, set your mind on heavenly things. Not the things here, but those things upward. In heavenly places where Messiah sits. So there's an agreement. 
He says, as obedient children, not being conformed to the former things, these desires that you once had that were against knowledge, the knowledge of God's will. But he says, verse 15, but this is how we're called to think. But rather according to the one who has called you, notice the next word, who has called you, and he says, this one who is holy. Now, again, and I, I've mentioned this many times, but it's worth repeating. Because for some reason, we hear in, in our English minds or Spanish-speaking minds, whatever language, we hear holy differently. Biblically, holiness is always wrapped up in a person. One is holy because that person is committed to the purpose of God. Holiness is related to an objective, God's objective. So he commands us here, and we look at it in the Old Testament, it is indeed a commandment. But he says, according to he who has called you, this one's holy, and therefore you become, but you know what's interesting? This word for becoming is in the passive. Meaning that it's not something that you do, but rather it's something that you receive. And what brings about this work that changes you? When you begin to say two things. First of all, when you surrender by saying, I want to serve God. Not that I want God to serve me, but I am committed to his purposes, his objective. I'm thinking this way. When we begin to think in this way, recognizing that we're called to serve, we see here that that brings about a change in us. And he says that you become holy ones in all, and this is the third time he's used this word, in all behavior or in all conduct. Now, I don't know why some Bibles will say in speech, but this is not a word of speech, although that's part of our conduct. But it's a word that speaks of behavior, actions, deeds. They are important to God. And he goes on to say, keep reading. He says in verse 16, Therefore, and I like this, that, that Peter, Paul does the same thing everywhere in the New Testament we see this. That revelation is given and then, they go to the Hebrew Bible. They go to the message of the prophets, the message of Moses, and they quote a scripture. Therefore, as it's been written, you be holy. Why? Because I am holy. Now, when we hear this, we see a similarity. God, you're holy, therefore, I should be holy. This expression speaks of a covenant because it shows a mutual agreement. God is revealing himself to be holy, and if we're in a covenantal relationship with God, then what God is, we want to be like him. Why? That's what we were created to be. We were created in his image. He's holy. 
then we are called to be holy as well. Verse, verse 17. And since, not if, a better understanding of this word is since. And since the Father, He has called you, and this Father, notice that He says that He is impartial. There's no favoritism. This one who's called you, this one who is impartial, when it comes to judgment. Now, there's a lot of people that teach the Bible. And I would just suggest to you this. If you're listening to someone, or if you're in a congregation where they never speak about judgment, be very concerned. Speaking about the judgment of God is not popular. There are people who have huge followings and they never speak about the judgment of God but when we look at those who the Holy Spirit inspired to write down God's word they spoke frequently about God's judgment in fact the basic name Elohim in Hebrew reveals a God who is a judging God the most basic concept of God in Hebrew is a God who judges. Praise God. Why? His judgment. If you were to ask most believers, you think yourself and answer this question. What does God's judgment bring about? His order. That's what we're seeking. That's what we should desire. God's order to be in my life. And God's faithful without partiality, to judge all people. And here again, here the message of Peter is not a message of salvation. He's not speaking through the most part for the unbeliever. He's speaking to Jewish believers and reminding them of their assignment. And by the way, whether you're Jewish or Gentile makes no difference. We have, as believers, the same ass assignment. The same God who provides with the same provision. So he says, and since the Father, he has called you, this one who is impartial in regard to judgment, he's a judge, and he's going to do so, here again, not in regard to salvation, but we're talking about a kingdom reward. And therefore he says, according to each one's, what? work what we have done see we need to mature that message of the gospel is a wonderful message it is foundational it begins everything spiritual that's pleasing to god in our life but it's the beginning and then we're called to mature he's going to speak about this later on we are called to mature and grow and not simply be speaking about how one is saved, but how one who has been saved, how they live, what they do, because God does judge each one according to his work. And therefore, we need to be people. And this last part of verse 17, that the Greek text is a little choppy. He says, to render to each one according to the work, in fear 
for the time of your sojourning. Second time he mentioned this phrase, sojourning. It speaks about moving to the right location. And as we are moving to that kingdom location, our works from now on, from the moment that we become believers, they are key in positioning us because God, notice how it begins. He speaks here. Go back to the beginning of verse 17. See, we always need to pay attention to how God is being addressed in the scripture. Here, what term appears? Father. Every time Father is mentioned, we need to think of God who is a provider. So the context is this. God is telling us how we can be a recipient of his provision. See, you can't do anything that's pleasing to God, glorifying to God, anything that's going to cause you to be a recipient of these great rewards, his promises, without his provision. One of the main questions that you should be asking daily is this. God, where do I need to be? What do I need to be doing? in order that I become a recipient of your provision in my life because without it, I can't do anything that's good. I can't do anything that's glorifying to you. You won't take pleasure in that. You won't see it as pleasing. No good can come without God's provision. So in verse 17, when he speaks about the Father who judges without partiality according to each one's work, in fear, meaning this, fear relates to giving God priority during this time of our sojourn. And then he ends it with, again, that same word that speaks about behavior. So during this time of sojourning in this world, he says, be about this behavior. A kingdom behavior that, that, that reveals to others God's presence in your life. Verse 18. Knowing that not with corruptible silver or gold you have been redeemed. Now, usually, if we're speaking about redemption, it's God who does the work of redemption. But when we speak about one being redeemed, it's just that, being redeemed. I do nothing to be redeemed. We receive redemption. And that redemption that we receive, see, it's an accounting term. That word in its origin, redemption, is a business term. It speaks about a payment that brings about a transfer of ownership. So God makes a payment. We know what it is. It's not gold or silver that is corruptible, that perishes. But he tells us here, you have been redeemed. That's how we know he's speaking to believers. You have been redeemed from, notice this next phrase, your futility. Most people are living. In fact, let me say this. Most believers today are living a life of futility. Why? Because they are trying and wrestling with God to get him to do what 
they want. How foolish. How foolish. No one will be happy achieving their will for their life. Hear that. If you get everything that you want, you are going to live eternally in regret. I guarantee it. No one, I say this frequently, no one stumbles upon God's will. It is always his will must be manifested to us. I've never met a believer that came to faith through the gospel and said, God told me I was always where he wanted me to be. Never. We find that faith brings about great change. If we were in darkness, we're not where he wants us to be. As, as Don said, as he sung, we need to come out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is an outcome of his provision. There's no way to be in light. There's no way to receive revelation without first being redeemed. If we're talking about that revelation for my life's purpose. So Peter is simply saying, you have not been redeemed with the things of this world, the precious things of this world, what most people are seeking, silver and gold. But you have been redeemed from your futility. Most things that people are seeking today are futile. That is another word for that which is vain. That which has no significance from an eternal standpoint. Shlomo, King Solomon. That book of Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, is all about this. Solomon is saying, I have had all the opportunities more than anyone else to get everything that I wanted. Nothing was withheld from me. And what did he say? Vanity of vanities. Listen to him. Don't focus on the futility. Rifka and I, we were at a congregation in Georgia. No offense to you from Georgia. But we were amazed that at the beginning of the service, they made a proclamation about, I am a child of God, and I declare what God is going to give me this week. And let me tell you, all the things they were seeking were futile. Why? None of them were eternal. None of them were lasting. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for good health, but I guarantee you, unless you are alive at the time of the rapture, we may be. But if not, you are going to come to the point where your health fails. There is nothing in this world that is eternal. Nothing at all. You have to escape this body, this world, to step into eternity. In other words, the kingdom. Don't be praying and focusing so much on that which ultimately is futile, meaning tied to this world. We've been redeemed from futility. And it says here, remember, who is Peter speaking to? For the most part, not the Gentiles. He's speaking to Jewish believers. And he says to them, 
And this is something that is plaguing the Messianic movement today. And that is they are too engraved in what? Ingrained in the traditions of the fathers. And when they mean the traditions of the fathers, they're not talking about Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. They're talking about the, the fathers, the sages, the elders of their tradition. Peter says, you have been redeemed from such futility of this conduct that was handed to us by the fathers, meaning the sages. Verse 19. No, he's going to tell us what redeemed us. But by the precious blood of Messiah, as a lamb, blameless and spotless. The blood of a perfect lamb. Now, even though lambs in the temple were examined, none of them were perfect. They met an inspection, but none of them were perfect. None of them, obviously, were the Son of God. Messiah perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly without sin. And it's his blood that redeemed us. And it says in verse 20, having been made known previously from before the foundations of the world. Meaning this. This is God's will, and this is God, remember, his provision. And God only provides what is absolutely necessary. Hear this carefully. God gives to us what is absolutely necessary for us to be where he wants us to be, doing what he wants us to do, in order that his perfect will can be accomplished through his people. God never gives something that does not, is not needed, is not required. So this perfect plan that he had before the foundations of the world. But what did he do? Although it was known before, but it was manifested, meaning it became a reality in these last days. Why? On account of us. Now, here's what we need to know about God. God moves in account of us. Let's take it another way. For the sake of his people. God, when you take a basic theology class, you learn something. God needs, what does God need? Nothing. God is perfect. He lacks nothing. Therefore, everything he does, he does for his people. He does so with perfect foreknowledge, with perfect ability. Therefore, if God provides and allows that which is absolutely necessary, and he does that for his people. That should cause us to do what? To fully, completely submit. We do not wrestle with God. Foolish. We need to submit. See, one of the reasons, and we don't hear this enough, but one of the reasons why the promised land early on 
was not called Israel. It was the land of what? Canaan. And the term Canaan in Hebrew comes from a word, which means submission. Did you know that? He was bringing them to the land of submissiveness. But we're also told it's the promised land. Why? It's only when we submit are we able to receive the promises of God. So every time that we wrestle with God saying, I don't want to do that. I don't feel that this is right for me. Every time that we wrestle against God's will, what we're doing is pushing away, refusing his promises, his provision in our life. We are our own worst enemies because we listen and we think according to the world rather than through prophecy. It's not a coincidence that today, if you go to, into most churches, in fact, the vast majority, it is rare that prophecy truly is being studied. They may take a phrase, a verse here and there from the prophets, but really to go through prophets, very rare today. He says, all of this was known before, from before the foundations of the world. It was manifested now at these last times on account of you. Verse 21, that through him, believing in God. Now, I highlighted that phrase in my Bible. That believing through him, you believe in God. You know what that tells me? If we take that literally, it says this. It is only through believing in him, meaning Messiah, this lamb who provided his blood. It's only in believing in him, through him, that we can believe in who? God. If someone does not believe in Yeshua, in Jesus of Nazareth, they do not believe in God. They don't have faith in him. Can they say, I believe God exists? Yes. But do they have a faith in God? They do not. There is no faith in God apart from believing in Messiah by name. Now, this may be very controversial, but it is a biblical fact. There is no believing in God without believing first in Messiah. And he goes on to say, this is, this one, this God, is the one who has raised him, that is Yeshua, from the dead. Resurrection, what should come into our mind? Kingdom. Over and over he's telling us, when I submit when I pursue the provision of God, when I gird myself for service, when my mind is bent towards God's will, then and then only am I thinking and acting according to kingdom reality. Why is that so important? Because the kingdom is without limitation. And when we are thinking and acting according to the kingdom, God's provision whatever we're struggling with, whatever the opposition is, whatever the enemy's doing, his provision to us will be without limitation. It's only when we're kingdom-minded are we equipped to do battle with the enemy.
So he says, this one who has raised him from the dead and gives glory to him. Unless I am kingdom-minded, unless I truly believe in these resurrection promises, kingdom promises, I am not one who is giving glory to God. As long as, and it's really a dichotomy, you have two choices. You are either going to be motivated by the things of this world, or you're to be motivated by the promises of the kingdom. Just that simple. There's no position in between. And what's the outcome? Look again at the text. He says here, when I am believing in God, my life reflects that belief. I am going to be giving glory to God so that your faith and hope is in God. What appears again? Hope. Over and over in 1 Peter, this word, this concept, hope, appears. And it's almost without exception, always close to some hint, some reference to the kingdom, usually as it is here in regard to the resurrection. Is your hope in the resurrection? Not just Messiah's resurrection, that's wonderful. That is a testimony. But when he says his resurrection, he's speaking ultimately about what we are going to share with him. Why? His resurrection, what does the scripture call him? The firstborn of the dead. Why firstborn? Because we are going to be heirs with that, that hope, that, that, that inheritance of the firstborn. He shares that with us. Verse 22. Your souls. Now, the word soul, in this context, is speaking about the very essence, the very being of, of a person. And he says, your souls be purifying. And this term, purifying, purifying, if you would ask any Orthodox rabbi, you have this, this two conditions, that which is defiled and that which is pure. What's the difference? In the state of being defiled, in what's called tumah in Hebrew, God can't bless. He won't bless. In the state of purity, one can be blessed by God. So he's saying here, he's telling us, if you want to be blessed with kingdom blessings, you need to prepare the very essence of your being by purifying why? This purity will give you the ability, position you, where you can do what? Notice what it says. In obedience to the truth through the Spirit. So it's only when I'm in the process of being purified that I can identify truth whereby I will obey it and God will Go to work in my life. And notice what he says. What's the outcome of that? He says that's going to be identified with sincere brotherly love. That is an outcome of what? A clean heart. Whereby you love one another fervently. Now, what comes into your mind there? 
What is God saying? And here through Peter, what is he referencing? If you come from a Jewish background and you hear brotherly love, you love one another fervently. You know what comes into my mind? The Torah. When Messiah spoke about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he says the manifestation of that is loving your neighbor as yourself. This is what he's referencing here. The foundation of a Torah obedience, walking and displaying love for one another and doing so fervently. What a powerful word. How can I do that? Verse 23. I can do that not in the flesh, not through my own human ability, but he says here, having been born again, not through the corruptible seed, not through a human birth, but he says, but through an incorruptible seed. What seed is that? The reference is by means of the living word of God. When you emphasize scripture and saying, God, more than anything else, I want to apply your word to my life. Everything changes. Does it not? Does it not? Everything begins to change. When you desire and you say sincerely, God, I want to be the man, be the woman that your word has called me to become, the first thing that happens is you begin to see things, your perspective will change. And that perspective change will give you opportunities, you will see opportunities to serve God. How to be a blessing to others. How to minister to others. You'll see that opportunity, and again, you have to make a decision. Throughout Scripture, God is always calling His people to make right decisions. So you have a perspective change. You see things differently. You see an opportunity to serve God. And then again, you have to make a decision. Do I want to do it? Am I going to interrupt my purposes, my plans, what my, what's going on in my life to engage in someone else's life? When you say yes to God, then that releases his provision. He begins to move in order to equip you to do his will. This is what Peter is talking about here. So he says, having been born again, not from a corruptible seed, but, but one that is incorruptible through the living word of God. Why does he say living word of God? Because it becomes alive in our behavior. And it remains for what does your Bible say? For eternity. Every time you see that word eternity, it's another kingdom word. A wise thing to do is to learn the words in the scripture that relate to the kingdom. Eternity is a kingdom word. I do this because I have eternity. Everyone has eternity in one of two places. And there are people, just like we see in that account of Lazarus and the rich man. Don't know the rich man's name, but we know his thought process. He has great regret in his life. 
And his only thought is of the ones that he loved, wanting someone to be sent to them to testify. Don't make the same air in perspective that I did. Now, one of the things I love about that account, I believe it's a factual account. Never says it's a parable. I don't believe it is. But the rich man, this Lazarus, he would be brought to this rich man's door. And you might think, well, did the rich man really know that he was there? But in Sheol, he looked across in that place of punishment and he saw, and he called him by name, did he not? Sin Lazarus. Now, he never did one thing to bless Lazarus. And it would have been so easy for him to do it. But in his need, he wanted Lazarus to bless him. What a change in perspective. The kingdom perspective changes everything. This is what Peter is saying. Walk in brotherly love, sincere brotherly love, that is an outcome of a clean heart that manifests itself by loving one another fervently. Being regenerated, born again, not through a corruptible seed, but an incorruptible through the living word of God, which remains forever. And then let's look at our last two verses. Again, a quotation from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And this is all to give us a right perspective. Don't live in a wrong understanding. He says here, therefore, this Greek term means based upon what we've just learned. As an outcome of what you've just been taught from Peter. He says, therefore, all flesh. Who's he speaking about? Is there any exception? No. This is a word that is for all of humanity. He says, therefore, all flesh is like grass. And all the glory of man, we could say, all human glory. There are so many people that believe that God is there in their corner in order to help them accomplish human glory. God's not interested in that. Doesn't motivate him because it's such a poor reflection of what God is about. He says, all flesh is grass. All human glory is as the flower of grass. And what happens? The grass withers and its flower, it falls off. It was glorious. It was pretty for a short season. What was the problem? It could not endure. It couldn't last. Let me say it in another word. It couldn't overcome the things of this world. Because it was of this world. It is only when you belong to the kingdom, then and only then, can you overcome the things of this world. And ultimately, how do we overcome the things of this world? 
If you were challenged, write down one word, one word to that question. What would you write down? Resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. It doesn't matter what happens here. Why? This is not my eternal home. This is highly temporary. Whether you live 60 years, 80 years, 100 years, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? It's over a vapor. Live for the kingdom. Have an eternal perspective. This is what Peter's saying. The grass dries up. Its flower falls off. But, last verse, verse 25. But. This is in contrast to. This is what God people do. We live in contrast to the world, and that's why the world hates us. And God's doing something. He's such a good God. He is bringing about a change we think in the world. It's really not. It's just being manifested clearly to us what the world is about. If you ask me, what is really those who belong to the world all about? They're about control. That's what we're seeing today. We're seeing the manifestation of the enemy's desire to control. It all comes down to one very simple question. We talked about it earlier at the very beginning of our first session. That word, authority. Who is the authority of your life? That is going to be challenged more and more and more among you. Who are you going to bend the knee to? Who are you going to submit to? Those who belong to the world or the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. When you focus on the things of this world, which are all temporary. In fact, you know why I believe God's judgment is kind of a, a off-the-record subject in most places? Because God's judgment, read the end of the book of Revelation. All the precious things of the world. God is going to destroy in a moment. Ask yourself a question. Am I praying, am I laboring for those things that God's judgment is going to destroy? I've worked all my life for this, and in a moment, God destroys it. Or am I laboring, serving God for those things that are eternal? And when the end comes, they are perfected. Where I fall short in the things of God, God's going to refine them, perfect them, so that I have them in its full perfected form for my eternity in his kingdom. He says, last verse, verse 25. But the word of the Lord, in contrast to the grass and the flower, but the word of the Lord remains forever. What's that word forever? A kingdom word. It is that word of the Lord. Now, there's a change. Because earlier on, if you go back to verse 23, where it speaks about the living word of God, it's a different word for word. This is the word rima, which is a proclamation. But here's the key. 
It's not your proclamation. I get so angered. It's okay to be angered. It says be angry, but sometimes I, well, never mind. But all this teaching about proclaiming, declaring, it's all rooted in pride. All rooted in pride. I declare this, no. It's all based upon God's proclamation. You know, I was listening to someone, and he says, I'm going to proclaim salvation for your children, your children's children. Where, where is that appropriate in the Scripture? Now, do we want that? Certainly we want that. But can I just proclaim it, and me proclaiming makes it happen? No. Nowhere do we see this being biblically taught in God's Word. He says, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word which is proclaimed. And that word proclaimed, it's literally the word which is evangelized to you. Now, why is the word evangelize? Because the term evangelization that word is, we all know it has to do with good news, but specifically, good news about a kingdom redemption. The gospel positions us for a kingdom experience, and that's why it says, this is the word which has been evangelized, it's in the passive, which has been evangelized, and then notice what it concludes, for you. Now focus on that for a moment. For you. God's plan is good news for you. God's word for you is good. Stop arguing with God. Now, how can I be so sure that you all, all of you, are arguing with God? Because at times, I argue with God. There's no difference whether you're sitting next to someone, behind them, spiritually. We have way too much in common, way too much. We need to be what, what, what Don said a few minutes ago. In a spiritual sense, we need to be what type of people? Peculiar people, right? Different from everyone else. And the only way that we become that is when we step out of the darkness of this world into his marvelous light. And the problem is, and what Peter's really emphasizing, and we'll close with this tonight, is this. It's not that we don't know how to step into that marvelous light. We're debating. Remember Elijah? What he said to the people? How long do you limp? What does he mean? They just, they're not running in the right direction. They're torn between, stop focusing on the futility of this world. Everything in this world is going to be destroyed by God's judgment. The only thing that's going to escape that judgment, that destruction, is that which is redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. He didn't come to redeem the things of this world. We're going to see as we continue on in 1 Peter. He's going to teach us about what are the things of this world. And the challenge for you is this. 
whether you are pursuing, holding on to, liking, pursuing those things, or whether you understand that this is going to be a big term tomorrow, whether you understand the biblical concept of liberty. One of the most perverted words among the believing community is this word, liberty. We need to know it from a biblical perspective. Help support God's people by purchasing items made by them. Merchandise with a meaning, products with a purpose. HolyLandMarketplace.com For more teachings, visit, support, or donate at TorahClass.com Join with us in worship and enjoy God's Word at Seat of Abraham Fellowship.